Today, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking with Scott Keogh, a well-renowned horse trainer within uh, the horse industry uh, throughout Australia. Afternoon, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Kay. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I guess we need to start the Scotty Keogh story from the beginning. Where was home and, and where did you grow up and how did you get into into horses and, and in particular horse training? Mate, well, I grew up in Warwick. My dad's a guy that uh, shoes horses and, and can break in, you know, the odd horse and, and have a run in a draft. But it was my mum's side of the family that were all horse breakers and trainers. And just by accident, I, I guess, um, all I... I guess my heroes have always been cowboys. That's probably a cliche. Um, but just pretty soon we were riding a rope pony after school and and can earn an extra dollar breaking a horse on the side. And and um, upon leaving high school, I ended up going to work for my uncle full time. And he was a horse trainer? Yeah, I had two uncles that were full-time professionals and a grandfather. Oh, wow. So, so um, it's a bit just, of an inherited uh, trait. Yeah, career options were slim. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> So, yeah, obviously did that for a while. You were a pretty um, renowned bronc rider too. Did you get into that sort of as soon as you left school? That, you know, is an attractive life for most young blokes in the bush. So is, did you do that alongside your, your horse training or did the horse training go by the by while you went bronc riding? Yeah, pretty much, mate. Like I always potty rode and steer rode and, and things like that. And um, actually when I was about 16, I had a scholarship to go to the, to the States, rodeo, to college. And I was collar roping an Arab horse at home, and he kicked me and dislocated my shoulder. And to cut a long story short, 18 months later, I'd lost my scholarship and got my shoulder recode. And uh, the rodeo got put on the back burner for a little ways, but I went to work for my uncle. And I guess I just stayed there. And it was a case of I'd get to a rodeo once a month, once every two months. But I really felt like uh, I wasn't really going anywhere with my road young. And I was 21 when I said, I'm either going to do this or I'm, or I'm not going to do this. And the horse breaking was a, it was a boring lifestyle. I mean, not many 21-year-olds live in a swag from station to station with their grandpa like I did. And, and I'm glad I carved out a horse breaking apprenticeship to fall back on. But at the time, it wasn't fun. So I went to America and went to work for Ike Sankey, which was basically the king of the bucking horses, and, and I jumped right into the bronc riding when I was 21. So, you know, that would have been, you would have hit America right at the right stage too, 21, unable to do everything in the States. How long did you end up spending over there? Mate, I, I was there with Ike for six months, and, and the upside of, of where I was is a town called Cody, Wyoming. And it's a, it's a tourist attraction in town that has a little night rodeo that goes every night for 100 nights. So I was at a playlist. I mean, this was, there was a rodeo every night. And, and I come home from there and, and won the Australian title first year. Oh, right. And where'd you win that? Back at Warwick? Uh, with the and APRA. That, that... Um, that's, what they, that's what they call it back um, no, they didn't. They didn't have a well finals like that. So what I was was of the high money earned oh, for right, the okay. year, not necessarily yep, the okay, finals. Okay. Oh, right. Um, so that, um, yeah, that's how, yeah, it all. It all happened pretty quick. But um, when you broke in horses for my grandpa, going to a rodeo was the tamest <laughs> thing to do. 
And so did you continue rodeoing for long when you came back or did you decide that that was, you'd done enough? No, it, it carved out a lifestyle then. I'd sort of break in for about four or five months, enough to fund my lifestyle, and then I'd go to America. And um, that continued until I was 28. And then you decided you best come home and, and get into horse training properly. Mate, it, it, was, it was one of those things. I was 28. My wife was pregnant. I'd been a pro over there for you know, half a dozen years. I, I'd had a good time. It was basically time to grow up. And uh, I come home and I bought 40 acres here just out of Warwick and I borrowed 100 portable panels off the Alvis Show Society and plonked them on the flat and armed with that and nothing else, I broke in 180 head that year by myself. And so were they for um, just people locally or did you, you know, that's a lot of horses. Did you source them from all over the, the state or how did, how did you build your name to be the person to send horses to at 180? You obviously had a good reputation. That's a really good question, mate. So we're talking about um, 15 years ago. So this is this is a little bit of a curveball, but that was before Facebook. So I've never, ever had an ad in a magazine. I, um, I had some customers who, who I'd, you know, throughout my bronc riding career would send them to me, and I thought, well, once I set up shop here for good, I, I think I'll have about enough work for about four months, and then I'll need a full-time job. That's what I told myself. And the full-time job never came. Um, I guess it was just word of mouth and um, a little bit of dabbling in every horse sport um, kept me afloat. And so, you know, the horses that you train now, are they for any particular discipline? Do you just break them in and and ride them and have them so that someone can catch them and ride them and, and then give them back and they can go off and go cutting or drafting or polo cross or mustering or, or do you are your main clients camp drafters? Are they dressage people or is it just... Um, you know, you you don't get them much further than being able to. They're, they're broken and ready to go. Yeah, I, I tell my friends I've got the best worst horse business in Australia because I just break in every thirty days. There's a freshie coming down the loading ramp, and yeah, in thirty days' time, press repeat. So uh, I make a living by just dabbling in any horse sport. And yes, I would love to. You know, I go to Huey Miles' place or Buddy's place like that, and they've got this horse that's in work with them for a long period of time. The rides are relaxing. Uh, it's more training than braking. And I am leaning towards towards more of that, but this is what's been my bread and butter so far. So, you know, a customer rings you up and he goes, Scotty, I've got this Acres cult that I want you to break in, and I want it to be able to win the Warwick Gold Cup at a three, as a three-year-old. What do you say to those sort of people? Do you go, just send it here and I'll do what I can? Or, mate, you're on the complete wrong track. That's not how horses work. How do you how do you deal with those people who have got this preconceived idea of how it's all going to look when they get a horse back from Scott Keogh? Mate, it's very challenging, um, Kay. Like, so you wind back the clock 20 years ago when I worked with my grandpa. Every horse come back skinnier. Every horse had hobble chase. Um, the people that were taking them home could probably step up on a young horse. Um, now through social media and, and a lot of false media, we, we've got a lot of dreams. And um, I, I don't know how there's not more accidents than what they, there is. Um, I, I deal with some wild types. Um, obviously, I don't have staff here, mate. That's the number one thing. I don't have staff. So I only need a dozen horses a month. I don't need to break in every horse in the world. Um, if they're over three-year-old, I just don't take them anymore. Yeah, so, you know, the horse arrives at your place. 
you know, someone who, who comes across as many horses as you do can look at a horse and go, this is going to be easy or this is going to be hard. Is it a 50-50 or are there people out there, more people out there with these preconceived ideas of they've got this great horse that really they don't have? Or do you think it all comes down to every horse is the same when it comes down off the truck to your place and it's your job to make it make it a horse? Or is there definitely stuff to do with breeding? Um, to answer that in a careful situation, back when I started my grandpa, everything was more or less untouched. And we worked with untouched horses. And he used to say if a horse float ever pulls in, you know, the horse in a two-horse horse float, he said, Scott, rub your hands together. And he said, that's free money. Free money if he's already in a horse float. <laughs> now, fast forward 20 years, yeah. I think he's wrong. I would, I would like so many of my customers to not touch them, and I'd like so many of my customers to, you know, attend a landmark sale or, or you know, attend um, a certain event and realise what horses uh, are winning, are in demand. Uh, but what we have with horses, a horse is a unique animal. You know, people aren't that passionate about a cow or that, but when it comes to a horse, um, everyone's got a good old bay mare, and um, if she's female, that means she must breed on. So uh, <laughs> put it this way, I, I have some great customers. Um, I think about three years ago um, was a good year for us. I broke in and pre-trained the winner of the Magic Millions. Um, a horse I broke in, I think he got third or fourth in badminton, the big three-day event in England. And then a horse I broke in and trained uh, come out for two and a half chuckers in the final of the Argentine Open polo match. So I, I have some great customers. But due to Facebook, I do get a few wild ones <laughs> contacting. Bloody Facebook. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you say when you, you, you break them in and you train them, so at what level is their training by the time you return them to um, the person who's going to put them in the Magic Millions? Very low. Very low level. I've, about all I can say in a month is I've, I've worked on their thought process and hopefully I've got them making better choices. But as the great Bart Cummins says, they go the way they're bred. And if all you can do is grab the back of your saddle and clamber up the side of him, he's probably going to jump mm. sideways. Yeah. Um, and that's a whole other issue. If you don't want to attend horsemanship clinics, that's that's your prerogative. Where me, I love them. I've been to three this year and we're in lockdown. You know, I'm, I'm a student for life. So I bring my notebook. I have a great time. I annoy all my American friends, send them videos on my horses, and I send videos to Ian Francis so he can critique them for me. But we have a lot of people that, in the sport that would be embarrassed if they were ever tapped on the shoulder and said, mate, you need to smarten up. Mm. When you say you have them for 30 days, is that a financial decision? In thir- if you have them for any longer than 30 days, there's no money in it for you? Or do you think if you can't have them to a level where you're happy within 30 days, you're probably never going to get them there? But a bit of both. I think it's a financial decision on behalf of the owner. Um, you know, I'm on $2,000 for that month. You can buy in the, the $3,000 service fee they put for your average better-end stock horse. Um, at the end of that 30 days, they don't have a horse worth five or 6000 hmm. You know, trotting through Dolby with 15 rides on him, most of them are going to lose money. So that's why your breeding's got to be so, so smart. You know, um, I mean, uh, passion gets in the way of profession. You know, a lot of people don't have a mare good enough to breed out of, and that's, that's the cold yeah. hard truth. It is, does become a bit of an obsession, doesn't it? It does, mate. It, yeah, the, the passion sort of blinds the professionalism. 
Last year, I think we saw you at the at the Theodore show and, and uh, you had a great audience there. That sort of stuff that you spoke about and showed at Theodore, is that what you have been taught, your grandfather taught you? Did you teach yourself along the way? Or is there still stuff you're picking up at the horsemanship schools you're going to in the last three that you've been to? Oh, yeah, it never ends, mate. It never ends. Um, you know, I've got a good grounding working for my family, but I'm left there just being able to get on, hang up and get from A to B. That That's, you know, really. But Gary McKee and Ian Francis were probably my two two main mentors in Australia. And you've got to remember, I come from an era where no one explained anything to you. You had to watch. Mm. You had to really watch. Now we go to clinics where people sort of come there and they're not observant enough. They're sitting there on their horse thinking, this guy better be a great teacher or I'm going to leave you saying this skill's crap and I've got nothing out of it. So I guess I got good at putting things into words because it wasn't broke down mm. to me. Yep. And so that show like you, you put on at that theatre show, do you do that on a regular basis now? Do you, um, Is that as much as part of your business as actually training and breaking horses or were we just lucky that we struck upon you to come to Theodore? No, it is now, mate. Look, to cut a long story short, I go to South Africa a bit breaking in, and the guy over there was the one who humbugged me to make the DVD, and my first DVD. And I was so embarrassed about making a horsemanship DVD. I thought, I'm not Ian Francis. I'm not Mark Buttsworth. But anyhow, it was about riding green horses, and I made... I found a niche in the market. I thought there was a gap in the market. No one was talking about horses that were stiff and run off and all that stuff, and uh, so now I've made four DVDs now, and it's become a big part of my business. And I turned forty just the other day, and, and um, I've, I've got an escape plan. I, I don't want to be stepping up on these young horses all my life. <laughs> See, I thought an adrenaline junkie like you would be thinking that was Christmas. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> Through those DVDs and that, you must now have a global audience of people who watch and buy your DVDs. I guess never in your wildest dreams as an 18-year-old did you think that was going to happen. But what sort of impact has that had on your life and how and how you do that and how you can now conduct your business? Mate, I, I built a house on the hill out of it. Um, my DVD's still in nine countries. And, and again, I'm, you know, to me, to get the horse to, let's say, win the big championship, whatever, it, it takes a village. You know, there's got to be someone smart breeding. There's got to be someone smart you know, set him up and do the foundation work and, and then there's the competitor at the end that does his um, quarter or whatever and quite often it's only the guy holding the trophy on the day gets the rec- recognition, you know. I've, I've never seen a horse win the Melbourne Cup yet and someone go, I want to know who broke him in. <laughs> but I tell you what, if he pulls back the truck and kicks some farrier, they want to go, who broke this bastard in? <laughs> so your name is attached to that horse for the rest of his life if he does something mm. negative. Yeah. Um, not positive, yep. but no, mate, it's, it's been good to me. So what's Scotty Keogh do for, for fun? Do you ride horses? Like, are you a drafter? And you wouldn't still be a bronc rider, surely. No, no, no. Like, when I come home from America, a lot of people don't realise I was doing 125 rodeos a year. So I come home and I didn't even go, I don't even attend my local rodeo as a spectator. Like, <laughs> I was done. And as far as jumping in a truck and buying another hot dog from a server, I mean, I, I can't even <laughs> worse. So I've just started challenging a bit here lately, and I love it. But truly, my passion are my kids. Um, I coach my son's football team, 
And during all this uh, COVID lockdown, it's the only thing I've missed is his junior footy and my daughter's junior netball. So, you know, the COVID thing, uh, it is the topic of every conversation we've had today. What sort of impact is it having on your business? Um, And do you think it's going to be a long-term impact if there is any? It has impacted me. Obviously, all clinics stopped. Um, I'm lucky that I'm lucky I don't have staff, mate. That's the thing. You know, I'd hate to. I've, I've had 40 horses in work here back in the staff days, and um, so I've had enough to keep me going. But yeah, lost all my clinic business. How do you know what to believe, mate? You just hear so many rumours. Um, I hope we get up and start again because I mean, who thought you'd have a health crisis and an economic crisis all in one? So. It, it's been tough all around for a lot of people. Yep. So if I come to a Scott Keogh clinic, what do you teach me? Um, it, it depends. Um, I have got by on that I started at the start. That's, that's the thing. You know, there was none of this. Dad bought me this open camp draft mare and, and around the pegs I went and, and there was a 90 score. That, that did not happen to me. Okay, I started at the start. So if You've got a horse tossing his head in the air and running through your leg. Guess what? I've got one of them home too. So I, I think I know where your frustration is and and hopefully there's something that I can help you with. So do you hold a clinic as a one-on-one or do you put it out there and go, you know, are you Ian Francis? We can come to a weekend with Scott Keogh, rock up there on Saturday morning and leave on Sunday afternoon and, and you've imparted all of your knowledge to us or is it – Scott, it's Kay Becker. I've got this horse and it will not stop doing this. Can I come for a weekend and tell me what I'm doing wrong? Uh, a bit of both. Well, to tell you, my weekend in the morning consists of, I have a virtual clinic in the morning. Um, a good friend of mine, Caitlin Hewitt, actually set that up for me. So we've got 14 people from around the world in the virtual clinic. Time I get done with that, I've got a couple that are coming for riding lessons. And then on Sunday, because we've uh, now allowed 10 in the group, I've got a group of 10 riders coming as a whole um, on Sunday. So uh, a bit of everything, mate. Got to make a dollar any which way I can. That's right. That's right. So the people who come to you, can they ride or are they you teaching them from ground zero? I, I, I tell people I'm not really good with beginners and I tell them honestly, um, a few pony clubs have hired me. And if a kid's bouncing along on a lead line, um, I, I can't help him much. Um, I heard an old story once years ago, the UBU German dressage coach come out here and every parent who had money bought their kid and he said, right, hands up, who's under 14? About half the group put their hand up and he said, well, go up the hill and jump a log. I can't help you yet. I'm a believer in that. You've got to have some life experiences or something, you know. So do your kids ride? Are they riders or have they seen enough horses in their life to... um... They do? It's a bit of both. Right? The horses are the bad guys a little bit because Dad's down the yards from daylight to dusk. Uh, I don't push it, but they're real chameleons, my kids. They try everything, and about two days a week, they, they want to ride, and we catch their ponies and we ride. And the other five days where Billy rides his motorbike or McKinley does some sewing, or I just I don't mention it. You know, it's up to them. If they want to ride, we ride. So over the years, you you know, if you're breaking, we're breaking in 180 horses a while ago. You're probably still doing the same, if not more now. What what are some of the better horses or the best horses that you've broken in? You know, you know, is there one that you stand out and go, I am really proud that I started that horse to get where it is today. And you know, 
Is it is it a horse that you know wins the Warwick Gold Cup? Is it a horse that's won a horse race, or is it that horse that won the Polo in Argentina? I like that horse, that horse, that uh, the Argentine Polo horse. But you know, to be honest, mate, it, it's like when you're a professional here, it's like killing chickens. They they go out <laughs> the gate and you don't see them. You don't, you know, the thoroughbreds don't even have a name when they come here. So uh, I, I haven't broken in a Warwick Gold Cup winner. I'm pretty sure of that. I've broken a couple of cut maturity winners. But, yeah, look, they're a long way from trained. I've only been just the first first cog in the wheel, you know, but probably is one of the more important cogs was, of the wheel. I was going to say, it's a pretty big cog. It's not the smallest cog in the wheel. They wouldn't be where they were if they weren't broken. And so, yeah. you know, you're training a thoroughbred to race versus something that's going to um, camp draft. Is there a difference in the horse type? Are thoroughbreds harder to work and harder to get to achieve or harder to get to concentrate than a quarter horse or a stock horse? You know what? I, I think that is the best part of our job, about my job is no two horses the same. I think I'd get a bit bored sitting in a cutting pen all day or just in a jockey pad all day. I think I enjoy the diversity, to be honest. I work a few barrier roads, horses that have been from the track, and I get a real kick out of working those uh, to hear that next race they, you know, they went in and loaded. But yeah, they're all different. I, I just got a metallic cat filly on my own that I'm going to give a first ride outside this half. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. Just seeing all the different little things they throw at you. So uh, yeah, look, if it was laying bricks, Kay, I think I would have been bored and done something else long ago. <laughs> I can pick that up in in one conversation. You know, you talk about a, a thoroughbred in a jockey pad. Where did you learn to do that? You know, that's not easy. Um. I should have jockeyed, Kate, to be honest. You know, I was little enough that I was rodeo mad. Um, I tell people that my phone is, is, my, is my number one ally, you know. Um, the other day, there was four world champion trainers in the States that I didn't know, and I rang them. I just thought, I'm going to these blokes. Three <laughs> of them answered their phone, and two of them are now allies. Like, I will ring someone up and just, I don't feel stupid. You do feel a bit silly in that, but um, a man called Cal Mole in Victoria, is uh, sort of my go-to on the thoroughbreds. He, uh, his son, Luke Nolan's a good jockey, rides black caviar. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 that sort of helped me on that side of things. Uh, Gary McSteeny and Francis have been a big help on the performance side of things. And um, it's like anything. The guys at the top, they're the easy ones to be around, you know. Uh, there's not too many guys that are doing a good job that won't, won't help a young bloke if you come there with the right attitude, you know. Yep. So you said, you know, you've got a, a horse, a race horse that's uh, not cooperating quite like they should, and they bring it back. And, and so do you start again from scratch with that horse, or do you, I mean, what do you do to try to get that horse back so that they can at least trial it? Yeah, look, mate, it's, the thing is there's no such thing as starting from scratch because he's not a blank piece of paper. You know, he's got some preconceived fears or ideas, and whether it was man-made or whether it was just the nature of the beast, you know, he got in that enclosed environment and tried his belly out and pulled up sauce and, and doesn't want to go in there again. So either way, I've just got to make that barrier a better place than what's outside. Yep. Um, do you subscribe to the theory that, you know, the horse chiropractors and all of those sorts of people have got a place in, in the industry, well, in the horse industry per se, because horses are like people? When when you saw nothing's much fun and when you're not, it's, it's a whole lot easier or do you think that's just the horses are have a mind and, and they, you know, are like people? Some days they don't feel like doing it, so they're just not going to. 
Yeah, 100%, mate. Well, I think it takes a village. You need a good fairy, you need a good chiro, you need a good dentist. Chiro yeah. uh, and dentistry is something that interests me, uh, but it's a haven for sharks because you can't really be tested on your work. You know, you, you can get all three or four rubs up the, up the mouth with, with your rasp and the owner, he don't even own a gag. He's not going to test your work and you can crack and crunch a leg here and get a pop there and he might have a lick and chew and you can tell anyone a lot of things, but... Uh, there is great people in those industries that, that do do a good job and you've got to be savvy enough to know who they are. Yeah, that, that is part of it because, yeah, you are right, there are lots of sharks out there. What is the most rewarding part of the day for Scott or the month for Scott Keogh? When a horse comes to you green and it leaves, at what stage in that process do you think, yep, that's been a really good day, that horse is going to be all I'd hoped it would be? Or, you know, is it when it will stand, when you can put the saddle on it and get on it? At what stage of the process is it that you really enjoy going, I've broken this horse now? When he's driving out the gate and he got the check. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only, you know, you know, I mean, I've broken a couple of thousand horses now and breaking's not like training. There's no days where we just walk along the road and listen to birds sing and just work the mechanical cow just a lick or two here and there. And you've only got into 30 days every ride you're earning your money. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's why there's no, there's no old horse brush just maybe. It's all hard work. I was going to say, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of days that it would be much fun after a while. <laughs> yeah. But, but all that leads, leads to one, you know, Unless I work on myself, Kay, and my development, yep. I'm going to turn around a 50-year-old man and go, no one wants to send me a good horse. I can only do the rough and tough. Yeah, and then yeah. you bug it. Yep, that's so right. unless, you know, you're entering a challenge here and there and you're working on your own development, I go to America every year, regardless. I go spend a couple of weeks with a trainer over there. So I hope if I run into you in five or ten years, I go, you know, I've got ten challenge horses in work or... You know, 10 pre-trainers, and I'm doing them a little easier than I was five years ago because uh, I know a lot of horse breakers that didn't work on their development, and they were just breakers and nothing more, and old father time, she's undefeated. <laughs> That's right. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Scotty? No, mate, it's been, it's been good talking to you guys, and uh, I, I hope it's not too boring for someone to listen to. No, I'm sure it'll be great. You go and enjoy that ride on that pony this afternoon, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you somewhere soon. Thanks, Kay. From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram.